worked on yet. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite the uh, children to come on down front, uh, all those up to a, the fifth grade. Come on down. Don't be shy. I don't bite. There used to be a guy who sold hot dogs at Tiger Stadium, and he would say, my doggies don't bite. My doggies don't bite. Have a seat. Come on down. There's got to be more than you, too. I have such a good story today. All right. Well, this is a story for adults, too. But, I, you know, you, you girls can actually, you can stand up here and look at this. Come on up. You can just stand. Then, then you can look right down, and you can see it. They don't want to do it. All right. So, well, what do you call these things here? What do you call these? Magnets. They're magnets. That's right. These are pretty strong magnets. Try to pull them apart. Go ahead. You can take them. Wow. They're, see, that's not a refrigerator magnet, is it? This would ruin your computer. It's kind of one of those kind. Now, so, if I put these magnets down here, I can do something kind of interesting. I can, if I turn them the right way. Oh, I've got to turn it over like that. Okay. I can make, here, here, I want you to see this. I can make these, this magnet move without touching it. See that? It's because these magnets have what's called a magnetic field around them. And I'm not going to get into the physics of this, but it's, it's, like, it's like magic almost, isn't it? A force that you cannot see is making, is pushing on this magnet and pushing it away. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? Now, I'm going to, I'm going to show you something else. I'm going to show you how we can see that magnetic field, because it's invisible, but we can see the evidence of it. I'm just going to put this down on top of here. And I found out, by the way, for those of you who like to do experiments, I was trying to figure out how to do this a year ago, and I got a piece of steel and I was making steel shavings by filing and it takes forever and suddenly it dawned on me, duh, steel shavings. Okay, I'm just going to rub and get this, get the steel wool all broken up and down onto this white paper here and guess what happens? Little pieces of steel adhere to the lines of the magnetic field. And now you can see it, whereas before you couldn't. Sorry this is taking so long. If you'd like to sing while I do this, go ahead. Here we go. All right, that's enough, I think. So here you go, girls. Now, as soon as I take it off, of course, it's not there anymore. But look, you can see where the magnets were underneath that. You can see there's actually a space around here where there isn't anything. See that? And then out here you can see more evidence of the magnetic field. Now, what I'd like to use this of is an example of how God works. We can't see God physically. We can't see the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascended and is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We can't see him with our physical eyes. Just like this magnetic field, but that doesn't mean... God doesn't have power. And that doesn't mean he's not at work. And we can see the evidence of what God does in the things he's made, in the earth around us, in the sun, moon, and stars. 
We can see the evidence in the life that he's given to us. We can see the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives as he comes into our hearts and changes us. So that's my story for today, seeing the invisible. You can take your seats. Thank you for coming up. We'll try to, to build more courage as time goes on here. We'll get a nice group, I hope. So, while I get ready to talk here, let me give you a word from our sponsor, IPM, Interim Pastor Ministries. Following our meal downstairs today, we'll have a brief time of reflection. We're going to talk about the top ten signs of spiritual health and strength at Hastings Berean Bible Church in the past 12 months. It's just a, like a, almost like popcorn testimonies. I want to hear what's been going on so we can praise God for what he's doing. I'm happy to report as of this morning, we have a nine-member transition team, people who have agreed to serve. And uh, I'll go through, all, I'll list all their names in the, in the bulletin next week so you can know who to bother with questions about what's going on. But we're going to be meeting uh, regularly and uh, looking at, beginning with looking at the life cycle of the church and kind of where, to, where are we at right now and where we go from here. So thank you to all of those you agreed to serve. And do pray for that team. It's a commitment of time and effort, and uh, we need the Spirit to move through that. So, I, But I'm happy where I'm at. I, I wish I'd done more interviews. Uh, at this point, I think I've, I've got about four or five done, but we need to get a lot more than that done. And you can help me. There is a sign-up sheet on the table in the back where you picked up your bulletin. I don't know where that is right now, but it's somewhere. And um, it's, it's a, it has some spaces in it where you can put your name down and a phone number at a particular time and date. And the um, interview is an hour, hour and a half, depending on how much talking I do. Uh, I like to tell stories. And, but I want to hear from you, personal testimony, your reflection on where the church is at, and so on. So there's that. And then one more thing from IPM. Next Sunday... The survey, the all-church survey, will be open online, and there will also be paper copies if you don't want to do it online. I, I will say this. If you don't want to do it online, that means somebody else has to punch in all of the stuff that you put in. So please take it online, because uh, somebody's going to have that burden of sitting there. You get your own thoughts. It is, it is anonymous, by the way, so you can just let it rip. You know, It's kind of like that. Um, and uh, there, there will be a, it's a, some of you are familiar with the survey monkey uh, thing is what they use. So the only downside of this is, that's a, one of the least expensive kind of things you can do. Once you start the survey, you need to finish it. If you don't, when you go back to it, you have to start all over again from the beginning, and you don't want to do that. It's four pages long or so. It collects a lot of information. We will get from that a 21-page report on the state of the church as you see it. And so the more people that participate, they really kind of the more accurate picture we're, we're going to get. And I'm excited. I haven't had this before. We've had other tools that we've used, and we're going to use a lot of other things. We're not depending on any one thing to do this assessment. This is like when you go to the doctor for a full physical and you get everything checked out. You know, they, they do all the tests, and this is kind of this. We'll get a lot of different views. So... Uh, that will help. When, when we've got the assessment done, there will be some recommendations made. Now, I know you've had assessments in the past. 
Um, there's, and there have been some you know, short-term results, and that's kind of the way it is. Hopefully, this will have longer-term results. The purpose here is to, is to come up with some, some things that are structured that we can begin so that when the new pastor comes, there will be momentum here. There will be a very clear set of goals for the next 12 months that will be underway and some major things that need to happen. And that will be a delightful thing for your new pastor. Now, as, as you know, I serve five churches. One of them was a church plant, so it didn't, didn't matter. But the other four were, basically, they were legacy churches. They, they, I was there for the centennial celebrations at two of them and for the 125th anniversary at a third one. And, and so we were, we were dealing with a lot of history and a lot of inertia. Um, I know that it's difficult to overcome inertia. And when I came in, there was nobody who had done, who was the previous pastor. There were problems, there were conflicts. In one case, that had caused a pastor to leave. In another case, a beloved pastor who had retired after 15 years of service. Um, and there's, all of those things are different issues. And it was tough. I, I realize now when I look back, that my first couple of years at all of those legacy churches I served, I was the interim. And that's hard. I, there were toes that were stepped on. There were people that, that left because things are different, you know. We can't have any change, right? And I don't care how progressive you are. None of us like change. We experience change as loss, and we grieve over it. And this is such a gift to a new guy, to come in and have some problems identified. The elephant in the room is spotted and shot and killed and hauled away and car carved up for a barbecue. I mean, it's all taken care of. And, and things are moving in a healthy, God-pleasing direction. So that's our purpose. That's what this is all about. And so please help me on that one. As we go to God's word, let's stop and, and pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us. It's a word of truth a word that gives life, and we pray that we would be nourished by it. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts today. And Lord, there may be those here who are under some terrific stress right now, some great need in their life. We pray, Lord, that they would leave this place uplifted and nourished and encouraged. Lord, there may be some here who are spiritually blind, who sin in their life, uh, are blaming other people, whatever. And Lord, there needs to be conviction of the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, move in hardened hearts today. Bring them to repentance. Lord, we need to be changed, to be renewed, to be revived. We ask for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, written by our good brother Luke. And I'm, I will read the first 17 verses as Paul goes on to Corinth. After this... After his speech before the Areopagus, and there were two prominent converts, Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 
And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Tidius Justus, a worshiper of God, and his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. But when Gallia was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them for the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. May God bless this reading of his word. So we pick up this story here. And Paul, after his ministry at Athens, which wasn't particularly long-lasting, leaves. Now Eusebius, who's writing in the 4th century, around 320 A.D., which is a good 250 years after this happens, by the way. So what happened 250 years ago? Think about how long ago that was for, from our standpoint. That's, that's pre-revolutionary war. That's a long time ago. So Eusebius is writing a long time later and about this. But this is what he said about this. He said that Dionysius was appointed to lead the church. He called him the first bishop of Athens. And while, you know, Eusebius is not necessarily, he's certainly not scripture. He's a, he's a historian. I think he was doing the best he could. But chances are this is true because why else would we even know the name Dionysius, the Areopagite, from chapter 17? Why, why would Luke have mentioned him if he were not known to believers in that era? After all, Luke was writing this for the church of his own era. I don't know that Luke had any idea that two millennium later, some guy would be standing up at a little town in Iowa talking about this book that he wrote. I'm sure even to this day, Luke's going, well, here we go again. I hope I got that right. Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he got it right. But there's a reason why this man was named. And that because people knew, and just like I mentioned, I was at the pastor's fellowship over in Crete with the Berean pastors, and I mentioned that I knew Steve Miller, who is the pastor of the Berean church in Spearfish, and they all knew him. See? So within a small group of Christians, there you go. They knew Dionysius. And so Paul left matters in good hands. And this is, I want to make this as, as a point. This is, I'm going to tell you a little story, and believe me, we're coming back to this. So probably eight or nine years ago, I got an invitation in the mail up in West St. Paul from another church, from Pilgrim Baptist Church, which is over on the east side of St. Paul. And it's a black church. I thought, well, that's interesting. And they were having a dinner, and the speaker they invited to speak was Jeremiah Wright. How many of you know who Jeremiah Wright is? Jeremiah Wright was Obama's pastor in Chicago. Okay, and Jeremiah Wright is known for his vociferous attacks on the United States. Uh, he hates this country. We're, we're the most racist country in the world, 
and he preaches racism. And, and he's very Marxist in his ideas, and I thought, well, this will be interesting. I have no idea why I got an invitation. I assume it was a mistake. But I thought, I'm going. I'm gonna, I gotta see. So I went. As sometimes happens in these situations, I was the token white guy. There were a couple of other white people there from, you know, educational institutions were there, but it was pretty much a, a black crowd, and, and people were milling around, and you feel like a fish out of water. I'm wearing my name tag. I always write Jimmy Hoffa on my name tags and sort of conceal my identity. And, I, and I'm walking around, and I, we're waiting for the buffet line to start, and I'm standing next to this older black guy, and we're chatting away, and, and we found that we had common ground. We both liked church buffets. And the ladies, had, the ladies had gone all out because they got this world-famous guy for a speaker. And we had a nice conversation about that. And he liked ribs, and I liked ribs. And it looked like the baked beans were pretty good. And we had a chat about our stomachs and how we wished they'd hurry up and get the line started. And then we ate, and the speaker was introduced, and it was this old black guy I was talking to. That was Jeremiah Wright. And so he talked, and he talked for about an hour and a half. He didn't say one word against America. There's not one word of racism. He talked about what it's like to be a pastor in Chicago. And he talked about his life experiences. And I could relate to this guy because he was talking about the nuts and bolts of surviving in the big city. He wasn't talking theology at all. And that was just interesting to me. Well, here's a story that he told. Martin Luther King was assassinated in um, 1968, I believe. Isn't that right? And after he was assassinated, there were religious leaders in the country raised this question. Some of the prominent religious leaders said, where is the next Dr. Martin Luther King going to come from? He had an earned PhD. He didn't get a mail-ordered PhD. And they decided that they would contribute some money, get some money together, and fund 12 young black PhD candidates at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. And that ain't cheap. But they put it together, and there were 12 selected, and maybe you didn't know this about Jeremiah, right? If you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't know this. He was one of them. He was one of the 12. And so they show up in Chicago. There are a couple of women involved here as well. And they began their doctoral program. And I don't remember if he said it was after the first year or after the second year, but they're well into it at any rate. And they were all summoned to the, the provost's office. And they were informed that the scholarship money had ended and that they were on their own, and if they were going to continue their PhD studies, they would have to f pay their own tuition. Well, this had pulled the rug out from under them because these were all basically people from very poor backgrounds. They had no more no way of raising that kind of tuition than the man in the moon. And they were devastated. So they went through the usual motions of making their appeals and so on and begging for some help and whatever, and the answer was, well, we wish we could help you, but we can't. The answer was no. And they began to get the feeling that this is an act of racism. And so they called a news conference, and they stood on the steps of the administration building, and they explained their plight to a small group of news media who had gathered to hear their complaint. And when they were done, one of the news reporters who was with a cameraman from one of the major stations in Chicago came up to them and said, y you all are not from around here, are you? And the answer was no, no we're not. He said, I could tell. He said, the, see, the way you get attention 
in Chicago is you set the building on fire, and with that as a background behind you, you call a news conference, and then you make your complaint. He said, I, I can tell you this. None of the other people over here are going to even put this in their news media, but I'm going to do you a favor because I feel sorry for you, and I'll give you 30 seconds tonight on the 6 o'clock news. But let me ask you a question. How did you get here? And they explained, well, we all, we all got these fellowships, which and apparently the money has run out. And he said, oh, he said, that's interesting. Is there a name associated with these fellowships that you got? And they had to think for a minute, and they said, oh, yeah, well, it was the Rockefeller Foundation. He said, have any of you thought to contact the Rockefeller Foundation about what the university has done? He said, because, you know, it's not a surprise that the University of Chicago might do something racist. See, the L on the south side stops at the north side of the campus, and there are no stops throughout the campus and the stops on the south side, because they don't want black people getting off the L on their campus. Everybody knows this place is institutionally racist. That's not news. Maybe you need to let the Rockefeller Foundation know, rather than call a news conference. So they did, but they didn't hear anything. Two or three weeks went by, and then there was a rumor going around the campus that David Rockefeller had been seen climbing out of a limousine and going into the president's office. They didn't hear anything for a couple of days, and then they were all summoned to the president's office. And the president said, there's been a reversal of our decision, and your full fellowships have been restored, and you can complete your PhDs here. What do you suppose happened? David Rockefeller came up with the money, right? And the Rockefellers, of course, were the, basically their money is what started the University of Chicago. And if they say something, and they say jump, the people in the University of Chicago say, how high do you want us to jump? That's what happened. That's a true story. And I thought, well, that's an interesting story. The story of life in Chicago is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. You better have a friend in City Hall. You better have somebody with some clout in order to accomplish things. You need to network in the city of Chicago in order to make things happen. That's just the way it is. That's Chicago life. You know, you and I have a friend in high places. We have an advocate that's much more powerful than David Rockefeller or some correct councilman that will accept a bribe in order to do something. No, we have one who is fair and just and loves us and sits at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is your attorney. He is your defense attorney. He is your lawyer. He is your inside man. If you know him as your personal savior. He's interceding for you. His blood has been shed for you. Your sins are forgiven through faith in him. God's grace. Do you have that in your life? You realize what a privilege that is? If you don't have it, why don't you get it? Because you need it. Otherwise, you're sunk. Your fellowship is pulled. You're out of school, and you're going to hell without that intercession. But you have it. Now, let me get back to this. I told you I'm going to come back to this. There is a co connection with this, and it's with where we start. Paul leaves Athens, and he leaves it in the hands of Dionysius, the Areopagite. What do we know about him? Well, we know that, uh, according, again, according to Eusebius, he was born in Athens. He's a homeboy. He studied astrology in Egypt. Well, he was, that was the only astronomy they had. Well, he was studying astronomy down there, something unusual happened right around 30 AD. There was an eclipse of the sun that wasn't in the charts. And he remembered it. It was, it was profoundly disturbing and very, very interesting. 
And then he moved back to Athens, and he rose to prominence with his education, and apparently a very well-spoken man. He became a senator and a judge in the court of the Areopagus in Athens. And then he heard the Apostle Paul speak and talk about this Jesus whom God rose from the dead, and he made the connection with the eclipse and the supernatural event, and something clicked in him, and he said, this is it. What this man is saying is true, and he became a convert, and then according to Eusebius, the first pastor of the church there in Athens. So Paul connected with a guy who was well-connected. Here was a guy who would be respected by the Athenian elite because he was one of them. Here, here was a guy whose education was recognized. Now, Paul was probably smarter than the whole lot of them, but they didn't know that. He was just this Jew, this traveling Jew. They called him a seed picker, like a little pigeon or a, a sparrow going around picking the seeds. He picked knowledge up here, there, and everywhere, but he wasn't. But, but Dionysius, on the other hand, who probably knew of only a fraction of what Paul knew, Dionysius was the guy they could understand, and that's who Paul picked to be his messenger and the first pastor of that church, a homeboy who had street cred with the Athenians. Now, that's not a bad way to do things, is it? Now, having said that, that's not necessarily always the way God does things. I thought right away, is that, is there, are there exceptions to that? I thought of Amos, who came from Judea and went up to the northern kingdom and warned them of the coming apocalypse because of their idolatry. And the king sent a message to him and told them to shut up and get back to Judea. Take your message home. And Amos said, I ain't no prophet and I ain't no prophet's son. But God sent me to warn you. So here I am. So deal with it. So sometimes God sends somebody who isn't a homeboy and who doesn't have street cred. But it's a message from God, so you better listen. So I'm not saying that this is the only way you do it, but I am saying, you know, it's something to consider. The Apostle Paul wasn't above doing it. God's hand was in that. We're, we're going to be looking for a new pastor here. Are you looking for a homeboy, or are you looking for Amos? Either way, it could be God's blessing in God's hand. But sometimes we say, hmm, we forget. Maybe there's some advantage to getting a guy who's got some street cred who'll fit in, who'll be listened to right off the bat. It doesn't hurt. All right, enough said on that one. It does happen that way sometimes. Now on to Corinth, 50 miles away from Athens. So a couple days walk, maybe three days. Corinth was the capital of Achaia. It was a trade crossroads. So naturally, there were a lot of Jews there because they were in the business of being merchants. So it had a bigger Jewish population in Athens. There was a small synagogue in Athens. There was a big one in Corinth. It was the seat of the Isthmian Games. That's hard to say. The Isthmian Games, they were held the year before the Olympics and the year after the Olympics. So twice every four years. Every other year, in other words, they held the Corinthian Games, the Isthmian Games. And they were an athletic center. There was a judgment seat there in Corinth called the Bema. In any other Greek city, the Bema would just be the judge's bench, but it had a special meaning in Corinth because it was where they gave out the awards for the athletes. The, the wreath that was given to the winners, the wreath that fades, as the Apostle Paul said. So he uses athletic analogy in his epistles to the Corinthians, as you're familiar. He talks about that because that was part of their world. Um, you know, they, I always say today, uh, this is relevant to us. 
Because when we as Christians go to heaven, there's still a judgment seat. Now, Paul says so clearly. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean there isn't going to be a reckoning. He says to the Corinthians, we shall all stand before the Bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, which is, in the Corinthian world, the, the awards bench, where all shall receive what is due to them for the deeds they've done in the body, whether good or evil. So let's make this plain and simple. You're going to get a gold medal, you're going to get a silver medal, you're going to get a bronze medal, or you're going to get a t-shirt for participating. It's the Bema. Nobody gets sent to hell from the Bema. But there will be differing rewards. So that, what do we read of the, the 24 elders who sit around the throne of God? What do they do with their reward, which is the crown of righteousness? They cast it before the throne. This isn't about your eternal reward. It's about the offering that you have to give to the Lord Jesus Christ when you're up in heaven. And I hope that it will be more than a t-shirt. Let's have a gold medal to give to him. It's not for our glory, it's for his glory. But that's the name of This is Corinth. Then Corinth was known for something else. Prostitution. It was the center of the worship of Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love is a place of sexual pleasure. So if we have Thessalonica is Boston and Athens, or Thessalonica rather was Philly and Athens is Boston, then Corinth is Las Vegas. This is Sin City for the ancient world. It's a, really funny to me, it's always been funny when I, after I figured this out, that Ricardo Montalban would tell us back in the 70s that when you bought a Chrysler product, you could have it with sit, seats of rich Corinthian leather. To Corinthianize in the ancient world meant to prostitute. In other words, super fake leather. You can get super fake leather in your Chrysler product. In other words, plastic. That's what it meant. This is a low-level place. And that's reflected also in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. He lists a whole bunch of sins, the sexual variety as well as, as, well as other types of sins. And he says, and such were some of you. But you've been cleansed, you've been redeemed, you've been sanctified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such were some of us. But Jesus has redeemed us and saved us. Corinth, a place of licentiousness and immorality. And Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. It's really no wonder that the Apostle Paul had a lot more success in Corinth than he'd had in Athens, where people thought they were all right. Generally speaking, people who are involved in all kinds of wicked sin know that they're sinners. They just come to believe that they're not good enough for anything else. And they responded to the gospel. People came to salvation in Jesus in Corinth. This is what Jesus does. He goes where the sinners are and proclaims the message of salvation. Now, just walking rather quickly through the chapter here, we'll see, we see what happens. First three verses. Paul gets to Corinth. He has nobody there. He has to support himself. The emperor Claudius had banned the Jews from Rome. In uh, the account of uh, Claudius's life, written by the Latin writer Suetonius, he wrote that those Jews, the Jews rather, were banned from Rome on account of Christ. So apparently what had happened was this. Everywhere there were Christians... Christian Jews, they were being persecuted by 
the synagogue people, the Jewish people, they were being dragged before the Roman courts in place after place, sometimes with a lot of noise and, and riotous activity and so on, and it was disturbing. And Claudius finally got fed up and said, well, we're not having that here, so all the Jews are out. That, that included the Jewish Christians, of course, because they were ironically now being persecuted, not for being Christians, but for being Jews. So they had to leave too. So this brought some friends into town, into Corinth for the Apostle Paul, fellow tent makers. Now tent makers in those days, uh, we shouldn't picture the pop-up tents that Coleman makes or anything like that. It wasn't like that. Um, these would be uh, heavy-duty tents that the nomads used, but there wasn't any of that business in Corinth. Tent makers worked with leather. It was part of what they did, and so they made harnesses, they made belts, they made pulleys, they made all kinds of things out of leather. And that was an interesting occupation for an apostle because it brought him into contact with all kinds of people from all walks of life. I would guess that when somebody came into Paul's shop, they heard the gospel. What do you think? And so the gospel was spreading through his occupation. He was a, being a tent maker, and, and that's a phrase we even use today about ministers who support themselves. And he used that occupation in order to share the gospel, which is a challenge to all of us. We're all in full-time ministry. Even as he's making the belt, and he's measuring the person or whatever, he's talking to them about how his life was changed by his encounter with Jesus Christ. This was his ministry. Interestingly, this Jewish harassment of Christians meant to lift up the Jews and to knock down the Christians only backfired on the Jews, which is an important thing to bear in mind. If we're going to resort to violence, anger, bitterness against other people, it's going to come back on us. That's just a biblical principle. Never, ever, ever take vengeance. Leave it to God. He knows how to do it. Maybe he will bring that sinner to repentance. Your anger cannot do that. All that's going to do is tick them off and increase the level of violence. God will take care of it. Trust God because we have a just God and a loving God, and he saved you. Maybe he'll save your enemies as well. So Aquila and Priscilla were refugees. They met Paul. They shared his trade. And it's probably the case, in fact, that uh, he, he might have actually gone to work for them. But they became co-workers, and is there a better place to find co-workers than amongst other Christians? You shall not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, not in marriage, not in business. If you can possibly help it, make your partner believers. Be, try to work with people who can be an encouragement to your faith and whose faith that you can encourage. So, Paul's method, beginning with verse 4, it's a familiar one. Where did he start? To the Jew first and also to the Greek, he goes to the synagogue. When did he go? He went every Sabbath. What did he do? He reasoned with them. The Greek word that's used here implies a discussion. There was a give and a take. He took questions, and he was prepared to give an answer. And what was he explaining? He was explaining that Jesus is the Christ. He reasoned and he persuaded his goal was to change their hearts and your minds. It wasn't for the sake of having an argument. It wasn't just to listen to himself talk. He wanted to change their minds and open them up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed the truth. So he went regularly, he reasoned, he persuaded, and he proclaimed the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And so what do we learn from that? Well, <laughs> go thou and do likewise. 
Do likewise. Wherever you go, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reason. The gospel can stand examination, as we saw in the case of the Bereans. They looked at the scriptures. They, they studied it. They looked into it. We don't have to be afraid. What we proclaim to people is a reasonable truth. And if we're faithful in proclaiming it, we'll discover that it is the power of God unto salvation. It has its own weight, its own strength. It is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, there's a wonderful situation here that the fact that Silas and Timothy arrive in Corinth, and then what happens? What does it say in verse 5? When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. The, the, the thing is not that they just found him ministering the word. When they got there, he now could make his full-time occupation proclamation of the word because they brought financial support with him. We're having a missions conference in a couple of weeks. This church does, has a wonderful record of supporting missionaries. And good work, you. That's a really good thing to do. And here is scriptural warrant for it. Our, our, our missionaries deserve this kind of support so that they don't have to worry about collecting money. I, I have to tell you, um, at the brag on the, the Baptist group I came from, what it used to be. North American Baptists used to be. He used to have a mission secretary by the name of Richard Schilke. When I knew him, he was a member of my church in Forest Park. He had retired. And Dr. Schilke had, uh, he had a secretary that worked for him, and that was it. And he had 120 missionaries he looked after, which is pretty incredible. He was a one-man mission board. And Dr. Schilke had arranged so that if somebody was called to the mission field, they would go in and be vetted by him, and he could have them on the mission field in 30 days with full financial support. There was a man of God with some usual abilities. He had all this stuff in his head. He knew who to call in terms of getting visas for people, making overseas phone calls, making calls. They would, they would walk out the door with a visa where other people would be waiting for six months to get visa clearance. I, I don't know how he did it. But he was, a, he was a man of great ability, great mental ability that God used. And, and this is the kind of thing that you want to see happen. We want to make it as easy as we possibly can for people to devote their full time to the ministry of the word. And I, I feel bad that there are missionaries who have to go out and raise their support. I, I know in some youth ministries, they spend half their time raising their money so that they can do ministry. And that's just not what Paul was having to do. He, he didn't mind working. He made it work for him. That was ministry too. But it was a relief when Silas and Timothy show up with the dosh, as they say in Great Britain, so that now he could go full-time. And God bless you people for making it possible for missionaries to go full-time in the ministry of the Word. It's an important service. It's important to keep the church's focus also on ministry of the Word. We need to do the ministry. We need to support the ministry. Now, what happened as Paul ministered, ultimately, of course, there was the usual reaction from the Jews who would not accept the gospel. There were those who did. There were those who didn't. They got tired of hearing it. Many rejected. What did Paul do? He moved on. All right? Um, when I was working on my doctorate at Bethel, we had this salesman that came in and talked to us about uh, how he would do evangelism. And he said, I have to teach you pastors something. He said, people are so afraid to, to share the gospel because they're going to be rejected. You're so afraid of that. He said, listen, when you do sales, here's what you do. You say, 
So what, so long, next. So what, so long, next. Not only me to be harsh about that, but there's something to that, isn't there? What, what, what is there about being rejected that is so terrible? It's terrible for the person who did it. It's freeing for you because now you get to move on to the next one. And eventually you'll find somebody who's going to say yes. Now, I am not a salesman. I am not a type A personality type. So it's hard for me to do. I get that. Nobody likes rejection. That's why I got married so young. I don't want to have to, you know, once I found someone who would say yes to me, I took her, right? By the way, she's feeling under the weather today, so pray that she gets better. But at any rate, this is, that was good advice, anyway, from that guy. So, so what? So long next. That's what, the, that's what the Apostle Paul does here. He shakes out his garment symbolically as saying, okay, I am guilty, not guilty, excuse me, of your blood. This is on you. This is not on me. Not my problem, your problem. I'm going to go to those who are willing to listen. And that's what he did. He did keep moving on. And he shared in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's another problem we've got. We measure success, for the most part, in our churches by numbers. And that's not how God measures it. God measures success by us doing what he tells us to do, and the numbers are up to him. We read again and again in the book of Acts that God added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. We tend to think, well, that's our job to add to our numbers. No, that's God's job. What's our job? Our job is to proclaim the gospel. The Campus Crusade used to do this definition of evangelism. Evangelism is sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That's successful evangelism. Amen? But we tend to think of this this way. I, I know Carl Vatters, who talks about small church life, says small church pastors, and this is a small church. You're, you're around 100. Most churches, most churches that are meeting this Sunday morning in the United States of America, 90% of them have fewer than 200 people attending. This is where the action is, but we tend to think, oh, but we're no good. Uh, denominational reports, I don't know how it is in the Marines, but a lot of denominational reports are like this. Well, we have a lot of churches that are under 200. We have many, many more that are under 100, as a matter of fact. And that's a problem. Who said that's a problem? It's a problem when there are churches that are not sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. It's not a problem if the church is a gospel-proclaiming church. If there aren't people getting saved, that's God's doing. Maybe those people are not supposed to be saved. I don't know. We, we don't tend to think that way. I have no idea. But that's God's issue. Are we faithful in proclaiming the word? Don't be afraid to be rejected. Be afraid not to share. Because for that, there is a penalty. I'm going to go on with one more biblical allusion here. It's not in my notes, but this is really important. The book of Esther... Have you studied it? You know the book of Esther well. It's a wonderful story. First beauty contest in the history of the world. And she was the winner. But she really was the winner for what she did. But her cousin challenged her. Who knows but whether you've come to this position of power, but for such a time as this. See, What's going to happen if... You don't intercede for your people. God will find another way to save them. But you and your father's house will perish. And I think we missed that line in the book of Esther. 
We've forgotten this. He does not, Mordecai does not say to Esther, if you don't intercede for your people, all of them will die. That's not what he says. God will find another way to do it. If you don't share the gospel with your neighbor, your coworker, your relatives who are unsaved, those who have been chosen of old from before the foundation of the world will not be lost because God doesn't lose any of those whose names are written in the book of life. It will be someone else's privilege. But that's not going to go well when you stand before the awards bench, is it? And I think when we're thinking about perishing here, we're not talking so much about individuals losing their salvation as it is about churches disappearing from existence. You bought this church from a church that went out of business, didn't you? Aren't there a lot of churches that aren't proclaiming the gospel? And what's happening to them? Are they thriving? No, they're dying. Because that's what happens when we aren't faithful to the ministry of the word. Now, I'm not saying you're not. I know you are. The place might not be packed to the gills, but that doesn't mean this is a bad church. You're a faithful church because you lift up Jesus Christ and you proclaim the gospel. Keep it up and don't be discouraged. Don't be worried if the numbers aren't big. Be worried if we slack off ensuring the gospel the way that we should. Then we have to answer to God. So Paul moves his ministry next door to the Gentiles. And then Paul gets this vision from Jesus in verses 9 to 11 where Jesus comes and encourages him. And I'm thinking how touching this is. This is just, it's sweet. Because here's Paul who's been going from city to city, and it's the same pattern. He goes to the Jews, he gets rejected by the Jews, he goes to the Gentiles, and then the Jews get jealous and they come after him. And they bring him, they haul him before the courts, and sometimes he gets beaten up. Once he gets stoned almost to death, manages to miraculously, I think, raised up from that. He's been, he gets beaten with rods, he gets whipped. This is no joke. This is intense physical suffering. And so here he is in Corinth. Now he's gotten to that point where he's preached to the Jews, rejected by some, moves, goes to the Gentiles. What's next? This is, now this is the point at which the beating comes. This is where the physical abuse comes. And torture is no joke. And so Jesus shows up and said, Paul, don't worry. Don't worry. Nothing's going to happen to you that's going to physically hurt you. And indeed, there is opposition. And he does get hauled before the court. But this time, he doesn't get beaten up. Jesus wasn't kidding. And plus, he said something else. And I'll leave. This sermon ends with this. He says, I have many people here in Corinth. And here's my thought on this. This not only includes the converts that Paul has been able to make, that the Holy Spirit has been able to make through Paul's ministry and the ministry of others, not just those. I'm thinking about all the people in Corinth who were chosen of old from before the foundation of the world, who have not yet made their commitment to Jesus Christ. They're God's people too, because they will be God's people. Don't forget, God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is at the beginning. He is at the end. He doesn't say, I was the Alpha and I will be the Omega. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. God stands outside of time. He knows his own. He knows who's going to spend eternity in heaven with them because he's already there. And he's looking at Corinth and he sees all these people who have yet to be one to faith in Christ. And he says, I have a lot of them here. Let's start looking at Hastings that way and its surrounding area. God has many people here who are destined to be part of the kingdom. 
And what a joy it is to begin to look at evangelism that way. This isn't a matter of some grievous task where we have to press this stuff on people and get them to see it. And, and if we don't, oh no, that's on us and it's also grievous. We, that's not it at all. There's all kinds of people out there. Jesus said it this way. The fields are white unto harvest. You know that Jesus never told his disciples nor us anywhere to pray for the lost. That doesn't mean we shouldn't. But what did he say? Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. That's another way of looking at evangelism. In other words, the fields are ripe unto harvest. Doubter Dave here. Pat sometimes calls me Downer Dave. Davey Downer. I go to Campus Crusade training back in 1972, I think it was. And the first thing we're done after we learned to use the four spiritual laws, we're sent out to go door to door. And I went out with a fellow North American pastor, and we're talking about this. We're, we're, we're both, this is, our, this is our faithful response. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. The first door we knock on, some lady comes to the door, and yes, we told her what we were there for. And we shared the, she, could we share the four spiritual laws? And yes, we, we got to the end. Would you like to pray to receive Christ? I thought, okay, we'll be moving on from this pretty soon. Tears in her eyes. All of a sudden, she said, yes. I should have done this years ago. She came to the Lord that day. The very first door we went to. We went to about 60 other doors that afternoon, and nobody did that. But we started with a win. Why? Because the fields were ripe unto harvest. And we came across a person who was ready. We didn't really have to do much of anything except just be there. This is, let me really encourage you with this. This is Jesus' encouragement to Paul. I have many people in this city. The Lord Jesus has many people in Hastings and the surrounding villages around here who are ready to receive Jesus Christ, if we're willing to be faithful and proclaim him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, please call to our mind friends that we have, neighbors, family members that we have who are not yet in the kingdom but who might very well be so that we are not afraid or ashamed to share the gospel. Forgive us, Lord, if we feared rejection. How small of us to be worried about our feelings getting hurt, to be afraid to stand up for Jesus when others have fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. Thank you for the faithfulness of our brother Paul and his example to us. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be like Esther and to seize the moment and to share our faith in Christ with others. Lord, please grant to this congregation the joy of seeing